first rule of film is lit is that we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or TV adaptation. Second rule of film is lit is that it's spoiler filled. We're talking full spoilers. Third rule of film is lit. Just have fun. Uh, fourth rule. No shirt, no shoes. Fifth rule of film is lit is that the episode will go on as long as it has to. Seventh rule of film is lit is that we always skip the sixth rule. That's just a little joke I wrote. I hope you like that. And the eighth and final rule of film is lit. If it's your first time listening to film is lit, well, thank you. <laughs> I, it's not. It's more of a just a, a, a thanks as opposed to a rule. But uh, thank you if it's your first time listening. Welcome to Film is Lit. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura, the lit, lit, literature expert, I guess. <laughs> how'd how'd you like word. that? It was great. I think that was the first ever spoof of Fight Club. All right. Um, boy, do we have a doozy of an episode. I say that every time, but I really mean it this time and the other times I've said it. Today, what are we covering, Laura? Covering Fight Club. Heck yeah. Yeah. Every girl's favorite novel and movie. Yep, it definitely doesn't skew to one gender. Well, here, here's the thing. I mean, it satirizes and, and heavily satirizes one type of gender. But, you know, it, it might appeal more to men. But I still think it's a great movie regardless. And I, and I hope to state its case tonight. Sure. But, yeah, I'd, I, it's one of my favorite movies. I, I love it. I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on it because I already know your thoughts on the book very well. I, I Because I couldn't help from reacting verbally as I was reading it. Well, we, we certainly have a lot of ground to cover. This is one behemoth of a movie and mm -hmm. uh, the book is actually pretty brisk and short. Yeah, I read it in a couple days. It's like 200 pages? Really wow. short. Yeah, I also just wanted it over. <laughs> Sorry. You liked it so, that much. Yeah. Well, let's just get your, like, straight off the top of your dome thoughts on the movie, your quick little logline. Go. I get it. I understand it. I'm not a fan of it because of the way that it goes about telling the story. So th that's interesting. So when you say this, how the story is told, what are you referring well, to? Just the way that the ideas are expressed. Like I get it. I get that it's, I get what it's about. I just, the violence and like the satire is too dark for me. Gotcha. I love a good dry wit. I love satirical writing. I really love that, but this to me sort of crosses over into the gray area of where, you know, people who actually are this violent and who don't understand the satire can be seduced by the surface level meaning. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? So yeah. I don't like, I just, I don't like the whole feeling of it. It's, it's really hard for me. Like, I want to be nice because I know you love it. And I don't want to be a poo-pooer just because, you know, women are supposed to hate this movie and this story. Oh, uh, like, no, I, I don't think I don't think so. I don't I think just, they're supposed to. I fall into that category of a woman who just does not enjoy this story. <laughs> I feel like, you know, some this movie is controversial in how people can take Tyler Durden and his message the wrong way that is something that can happen and that's a factor but for you know you and me it's obvious to us how tyler is this manifestation for rabid insanity but it's not obvious to other people and you're saying that you just don't like messages this yes. dark and okay well yeah and i like it's one of those things like i know that there are a lot of like not just authors there are also musicians and directors and all that like i understand that there are plenty of people who take satire and push it past 
the obvious point. Uh-huh. I just, I think there's a lot of danger in that. And we can talk about that. But like that to me, like when there's clear evidence that people are using that satire because they don't understand it and they're taking it literally and they're using it to be violent or be racist or mean, like that to me is not an enjoyable thing. So that's just, I don't know, right off the bat, like, I, I was a little nervous to read this book because I guess I can get into my journey a little bit. Yeah, like, go ahead. I, I had seen the movie, I think in high school, based on the recommendation of a friend and my best friend, shout out to Allison, and she liked it. And so I watched it by myself one night. I was at home and... I really didn't like it, and this is probably pre-understanding what it was about. All I saw was the violence, and it was really intense for me, and I felt really uncomfortable and didn't like it, and probably lied to Allison and said I liked it, (laughs) just to be nice, because I'm that kind of person. And then didn't know it was a book until we started developing this podcast, and we were putting together a list of books and movies that we could use on the podcast. And so we ordered the book, and it's very similar to the movie. So that's about it. I read it very quickly, and yeah, it was it was an interesting read. Not something that I would necessarily pick up by myself. So that was something that the podcast kind of gave to me. Like, it's always nice to step outside of your normal realm of genres. So yeah, mm-hmm. I read it. It was interesting. Probably won't read it again, but... Yeah, that's my journey. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you would read it again, knowing how you don't, didn't like it. But yeah. um, <laughs> but I watched the movie a second time, knowing I didn't right. like the movie. So. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I, I do understand the reputation behind it, but I always watch it at face value. I never take in those kind of outside considerations of mm-hmm. like how people can take it the wrong way. I just look at it for its satirical message. And for me... Um, it's not too dark. In fact, if you've learned anything from me in this podcast, I'm kind of a a, a dark. I, I I thrive on that. Like really, it's it speaks to a demented part inside of me, probably. Okay. But we live together, right? I remember, mm-hmm. it's a little scary. <laughs> That's where I go on Saturday nights. Not here. Oh my God. Fight club. Uh, You're not working at the studio. Nope. But. <laughs> That's just my cover, but I can't, I'm already breaking the rule. I can't oh talk God. about it. Oh my God. But so it was, Fight Club was and is my oldest brother's favorite movie. And he's eight years older than me. And so he would watch it occasionally in high school. And my older brother, he's he's really cool and did all those older brother things like, you know, when the parents were away, he'd show me the cool movies or they'll let me stay up late if he was babysitting. You know, like normal... So I was a cool sibling. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I don't know what you did with Robin, but but even Fight Club, he kind of knew that it was a little too intense to show eight-year-old Danny. It, it, it probably was too much, and, and he, I think rightfully, didn't show me Fight Club. But then when I was around 10, I saw it a little cut of it on TV and I don't know where my parents were at this point but so I didn't even see the actual you know version of Fight Club I saw like 30 minutes of the you know the censored TV version mm-hmm. and even that was too much <laughs> for what? little Danny I, I, the middle portion when uh, he moves into Paper Street I remember I remember as a kid watching that just being like that house is so filthy and they're fighting and they're all bloodied i'm like this is like i was like completely turned off by it but then i finally watched it sat down and watched the the dvd because i had got the special edition for my brother for christmas Mm -hmm. so i remember around seventh grade I popped it in uh, during a road trip. I had one of those portable DVD players. Oh, Remember yeah. one of Robin those? And I had one yeah. Of those. Yeah. I popped it in and was entranced. Like I was so taken by the first half. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, this is like so edgy and cool and like, yeah, f the system, f f commercialism and consumerism, <laughs> like all that. Like, and then to go from there and then the second half is a satire on that type of feeling yeah. on that anarchy quote unquote mm-hmm. and i kind of was like duped and that that had been the first time that 
that kind of a film has ever done that to me. I was at such a young age, you know, I hadn't watched a ton of films, but to be essentially proven wrong and stupid, like the movie to say like, hey guy, Tyler isn't cool. Yeah. Like he, this is good, this is what shows you when masculinity goes too far. Mm -hmm. Like it t you're not supposed to idolize Tyler. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I get it. And I, that was like, I, I, this memory really sticks out in my mind of being like, wow, my views were wrong. And that's why I think that this movie, along with just being technically perfect, like a, like a David Fincher, like every David Fincher mm -hmm. film is, mm -hmm. along with just being like technically perfect, I think is just like the most scathing condemnation of toxic masculinity that I've ever seen. You know, it shows us what men do when we're truly allowed to abandon our civility and give in to this carnal rage that's supposedly in all of us, this flaw in every man. And like any man, myself included, would like, would like to think that we can turn this part of ourselves off and just like off and on like a switch like all the men in the fight club do, right? They think they think the fight club is this way to release tension and to just, you know, feel better about themselves. But what the movie's really saying is that no, this this rage that you let out will consume you just like it did with the club, which, you know, it led to the development of Project Mayhem and you know the the film and like the novel is you know, an exaggeration of this understanding that mm -hmm that you know if we're really allowed to flex our masculinity like this night after night it will turn you know you can turn into a domestic terrorist organization yeah. right and concerning its message about consumerism looking at it in 2020 it, it might be a tad preachy and, and teen angsty right sure. we, we've seen this message a, a bunch of times of being like oh you know like you're all drones buying <laughs> buying and, and yeah you're all oh, sheep yeah. and what you buy and what you do is just, it just feeds into, you know, the big corporation that you're working for. It's just like a cycle, right? And so I'll admit that that message is a tad preachy, but it's not altogether stale. I think in the movie we see both extremes, right? In the beginning, he's, the narrator is tied to his possessions and you know his what he owns ends up owning him you know like right, tyler like says. says right but then once he finally meet quote unquote meets tyler and starts the fight club he completely abandons his possessions you know in favor of yeah. this life of detachment and anarchy i mean living in that house in P paper street oh, just yeah. completely dilapidated talk about the complete opposite of mm -hmm. what um, he was just living in it. And, and so what I, by showing us both extremes, I think the movie is saying that the middle ground is kind of the optimal path, yeah. right? You know, we should still buy things and be a part of society, but we shouldn't, you know, let our possessions and our jobs dominate our life. There's no harm in going off the grid once in a while, but once you make it your mission to rebel against society, against society, well, you know, you can lose your way real fast. You can see that right, you're... you end up losing your identity. Yeah, yeah losing your identity yeah. and can accidentally, you know, be in Project Mayhem or something like this. So <laughs> that's that's kind of my big, my big speech of why I think it's so special. And again, I, I understand how how its messaging can turn you off. And it's definitely, I'm not going to argue that this movie isn't controversial. However, it doesn't offend me. I, I see what it's saying. And I, I think it, it does have some elements that we should talk about that haven't aged well. Yeah, but I have a list. <laughs> I, I have a small, small list, but I can still kind of divorce myself from that and really just enjoy the movie on its own technical merits that you know, it, it still remains one of my favorite films. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's just get into it. What's one of the biggest, I know that the novel is very similar to the movie, but let's get into one of the biggest differences between the book and the movie. I, I actually wouldn't say that there's a huge difference mm -hmm. between the book and the movie. There's nothing that really stuck out in my mind where I was like, like, oh, Tyler is real. Like, there's nothing yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. um, I I think it's really true to the book, which is nice. Like, 
something that actually is a is similar is how there are breadcrumbs to show you that Tyler isn't real and that they're the same person all throughout the book mm -hmm. and throughout the movie. I I like that structure and I really like how if you know the twist, it really does. I can understand how you'd want to go back and pick up the clues if mm -hmm. this is like the first time reading or the first time watching. Right. And because I had watched the movie in like 2000 10 or something, I went into the book sort of marking little clues, and it was kind of fun to see how Chuck Palahniuk peppered those in. It's really smart. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, we've talked about going between writing and then the visual art of movies, and a lot of the clues in the book are obviously more linguistic. Sure. rather than in the movie, which is like, you'll sort of see visual clues. So for example, it's really easy to focus on Marla's language when Tyler or the narrator is talking and he says like, oh, like, we don't want you here. Or like, like, oh. what, like, he, he'll, he'll say like us and he'll say like, he'll use the inclusive pronouns. And then she's like, what are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Yeah. And if you don't know the twist, it's easy to miss those things. But linguistically, if you go back and you're like, oh, well, of course he's talking about himself and Tyler as two separate people. But then in the movie, it's a little bit different where you're seeing visual clues. So there was this one that I thought was really interesting where you see Tyler or the narrator in the very beginning of the movie and he's lying down on his Ikea couch that's like green and white striped. And then later, right before they, they start the fight club, Tyler Durden in his imagination says, like, fuck your sofa with a string bean pattern. So there are these smart visual cues, like how would Tyler know that his, his sofa was green and white? Right. Like, and so again, like on your rewatch or on your reread, you pick those things up. And I think those are really smart. And I, I enjoy revisiting that. That was probably my favorite part of rereading the book because you can see those things really, really clearly. But that's, that's just kind of a, a shade of difference, you know, just going between being smart with linguistics versus being smart with a visual cue. Gotcha. Cool. And to comment on that, in the movie, it's very clever because a couple times the narrator, when talking to Marla, says like, Tyler's not here, or he refers to Tyler right. in the third person. In the third person, but in, it, it could go either way. It doesn't necessarily spoil the twist. And there are certain nuggets here and there where when the narrator talks to Tyler when he's in the middle of intercourse with Marla, and it's a hilarious scene when they open the door and he's wearing the dish glove. Yeah. And fun fact, that was an addition that Brad Pitt brought into it. No one had thought to do that. And Brad Pitt's like, wouldn't it be funny if I just wore this glove? And they put that in in the test screening. That actually got the biggest laugh of the whole movie. So, so they kept yeah, that in funny. there. But during that scene, when Tyler closes the door, Marla's like, who are you talking to? And like, yeah. of course, the second time around, it's like, yeah, he's, yeah. So. There's another time when clearly Tyler is the narrator as Ed Norton. He's thinking that he's hearing Tyler and Marla upstairs having sex. And then as soon as he picks up the phone and starts talking, that sound goes away. Right. And again, it's a really smart audio cue of like, you know, if you're paying really close attention the first time you watched it, maybe you just thought that it was really bad audio. Mm -hmm. And that they forgot to add in the fact that there were, you know, there was a couple upstairs having sex. But then when you know the twist, you come back to that and you say, oh, he's only hearing it in his mind. Right. And so that's why the sound goes away, because it's not actually happening outside of his head. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, those things are really, really smart. And I mean, you know that I love David Fincher. Yes. Hello, Mindhunter. Hello, Gone Girl. Right. Love those. But... Yeah, it's it, it's so smart, and I I totally understand why people are, are a fan of this film. Mm -hmm. I get it. It's just not, yeah, it's not for me. Yep, and yeah, that's completely understandable. I think with the nature of its narrative, it's definitely okay 
to feel like that. But you mentioned David Fincher, and now now you you triggered me in a good way because I'm just gonna go off. Whenever you sure. mention David Fincher around a film major, oh boy, <laughs> hunker down because that. That person is going to be talking for a while. Oh, okay, yeah. David Fincher, God Among Men. Uh, this is, he, he was still relatively up and coming. He broke waves with a seven in uh, 95 with, with Brad Pitt, which has another incredible twist ending. Um, so that was kind of David. Yeah, that was Fincher's big break in a sense. And then he made the game two years later with Michael Douglas, which, I mean, is all right. It's one of the lesser Finchers, in my opinion, that tries to have a big twist ending. But when you think about it, I'm like, that's ridiculous. It's one of those twist endings. Okay. okay. And then now, third film in a row, third earth-shattering twist ending, and seventh grade Danny, when he saw that twist ending, get out of here. My mind has never been blown more than maybe, I don't know, when I saw Inception, you know, in, in 10th grade, but I remember my stomach sinking when the twist finally clicked as the narrator says, you know, Ed Nor Edward Norton says, we have just lost cavern pressure. And then, you know, yeah. he says like, he admits that I am you. I just, I lost it. And <laughs> let's get back. So the editing on this bad boy, Let's see. Um, the editing by James Haygood. He also, you know, edited Panic Room and uh, The Game and, and Tron Legacy along with Fight Club. I forget that Fight Club is is two hours and 19 minutes. It feels like whenever, whenever I think of Fight Club, I think, you know, two-hour movie. Like, you know, but my favorite line, it just flies by. But to have that extra 19 minutes, which is considerably more th mm -hmm. than two hours... It always amazes me, and it's insane that James Haygood wasn't nominated for anything. I mean, this movie wasn't nominated for a lot when it came out. It was very divisive, as mm -hmm. you could imagine, but it also was not a hit. This movie cost $60 million to make. Wow, that's a lot. Which is... Or, that sounds like a lot to me. Okay. Yeah, oh no, it is. And in 19... 99 i mean it wasn't that long ago but still 21 years ago 60 million dollars was like a big budget movie and okay. most of that most of that money went towards securing brad pitt because he was really? yeah because david fincher he was like look you can make this movie for five million dollars and it might go it might make a little splash in indie theaters and you know it'll go maybe we'll go direct to dvd or you can get you can get stars, you can spend all this money on lavish production design and to work with the best in the biz and we can get like a huge hit on our hands. Mm -hmm. And he was only half right because it came out and it was not a hit. It only made a hundred million dollars worldwide, which seems like, I mean, it's more than its budget, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, it's not enough to be a hit. I think people forget that studios spend about about the same amount, a commensurate amount of their budget on advertising. Mm -hmm. So you could say that this movie was actually a $120 million movie mm -hmm. and they made $100 million on it. So it was not a hit. It was not critically successful. A lot of people were not not jiving with the movie, especially my boy Ro Roger Ebert. I mean, he, he oh, only right. gave it... We heard the Yeah, he only gave review. it two out of four stars, which, I mean... I, I I'm just, right there with you. Yeah, hey, well... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> but but then, of course, it became this huge cult classic, and it's one of the highest grossing movie for DVD sales. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So, and it, and it has completely made back all its money and now has this huge reputation. It's on a bunch of, of lists for the greatest movies ever made and also on a lot of lists for the most controversial movies ever made. So, But David Fincher, he... We've talked about this on the Gone Girl episode, but he is famously or infamously not difficult to work with, but working on a Fincher film is is rigorous. You work long hours, you do a bunch of takes, and the filming on this lasted 138 days, which is a, a lot of days. Mm -hmm. And this is when he was shooting on film. You know, he shoots everything digitally now, mm -hmm. but he's shooting on film, and 
he shot over 1,500 reels of film, which to put that into perspective, that's more than three times the usual amount for a movie of this length. That's insane. So he, he shoots all this footage, and the original cut, you know, assembly cut, was like three and a half hours, and of course, you know, they had to cut that down. Right. And I'm amazed they were able to cut it, cut it down to two hours and 19 minutes and make it fly by. I mean, I'm a little biased because I just love the movie so much that it, it, it flies by for me naturally, but I really think there's some skill in the editing. Mm-hmm. Along with great cinematography by you know Jeff Cronenweth, his normal cinematographer, let's see. Yeah, he, Jeff also shot Gone Girl, like we talked about, The Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Very Tattoo. Very similar feels. Oh, I yeah. I can see, yeah, the dark... The, the lighting is very similar. Yeah, very moody. Very, very moody. Like, scenes have a color, kind of a like grimy sheen to them. Yeah. It's like... Yeah, when I think about this movie, I just kind of think, like, yellow and brown mm-hmm. and red, <laughs> you know, because, of like, like, of the the paper and the National Geographics in the Paper Street House and mm-hmm. the blood and the dirt. That's what I think about. Yeah. So well done to mm-hmm. the DP. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well done. You made it look bloody and dirty. Great. It's just Fincher's movie. There's such a precision to them that maybe maybe I'll admit this that I kind of marvel at the the filmmaking behind it more so than the movie itself. I think Fincher films they're doubly good because they have great stories and great filmmaking, like Gone Girl or The mm-hmm. Social Network. Another one of my favorites, as I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. But since I do jive with what it's saying so much, I think I, I put it above the social network. But, I mean, he just has... There, there's such a craft. I mean, Mindhunter, my goodness. Oh, what what an incredible stop. show. And I'm going to start going off on that if you don't stop me. So, stop me. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's based on... A, ooh, here. we should do that. Spoiler alert. Shut up. That's based on a book? I, yeah, th- yeah. We're going to do an entire series of Of, like, a nonfiction series. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we can do that. Hell yeah. But he, I mean, that show, he he puts so much work into every season that there's, like, three years in between, you know, season one, season two, and season three isn't coming out anytime soon either. And so who knows when that's going to come back. But, yeah, I I admire Fincher's craft so much. He works with the best in the biz. Another shout-out I'll do is... uh, Lorraine Mayfield, she did the casting for this. I think the casting in this movie is pretty impeccable. I Yeah, I definitely wanted to highlight Ed Norton because I love him in all of Wes Anderson's movies. Oh, yeah. And he's such a cute, sort of soft-spoken, fun, but, you know, quirky kind of guy. And even his voice, it's so quiet and comforting. And like I said, I'm so used to seeing him in Wes Anderson movies where he's just humble and like your everyday guy so it's really smart to cast him in something like this where he literally like you don't want to see almost like even before you know that he's not tyler you don't want to see it because like he's just the lonely guy that orders ikea furniture from his toilet Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and he's not necessarily he doesn't look weak but he is a skinny guy right Right. and which makes all this more sense that tyler is this you know buff cool sexy kind of guy who can fight and it's like when you realize that he's part of his mind he tyler represents what he wants to be Mm -hmm. or what he thinks he wants to be um it's like oh yeah the casting of edward orrin that's 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 spot right. on. And then the casting to take that further, the casting of Brad Pitt, of course, is perfect because he is the sleek Abercrombie model that <laughs> you know, like Edward Norton would want to think himself as mm-hmm. or that he could be because like what does Brad Pitt have that any any normal mortal could? Right. <laughs> Gosh, those those abs are unnatural. I'm kind of. I get pissed watching watching that one fight yeah, scene. I'm just like, real. yeah, it's not real. That's not real. <laughs> but well, this goes ties into one of my criticisms that I wrote down. There's a scene where they're on the bus um, and they see a Gucci ad. Right. And fun fact leading up to that scene, there's a guy who brushes past both of them, uh-huh. and when he bumps into Tyler, he doesn't say anything. But then when he bumps into the narrator, he says, "Excuse me." <gasps> 
I didn't notice yeah. that. Yeah, so that's another hint. You Hawkeye. Yeah. Man. So the scene I'm I'm criticizing is they see this Gucci ad of this male model wearing underpants right. and flexing his abs. And then, you know, Tyler Durden, he makes a sly mark. He's like, that's not how men look. Like, society pushes this on us that we need to work out and, like, look like this. But, you know, that's really not, like, what we are. And then the very next scene... Tyler Durden, Brad Pitt is shirtless fighting, and he has the same exact body as yeah. the Gucci ad. It's like it, the scene is right next to each other, and so I I don't think that that was on purpose. I really think that was what you yeah. think that was on purpose. No, I can I can see how you know how people who deny 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 the most are the ones who want that thing the most mm-hmm. like the lady doth protest too much in a way like i can i can kind of see that as well like he hates that he wants those things a little bit mm-hmm. and so he makes them into the villain when really like it's just him wow laura are you positively commenting on the on fight club i don't know positively maybe i don't know i just i like i can see how that would be a intentional decision Mm -hmm. because that's like that's what he hates the most you know is those images of perfect men and he wants to fight that like remember when he says oh i just felt like destroying something beautiful yeah whatever when and you know i didn't know obviously the first time when i watched this in high school i didn't know that who jared leto was and you told me that he plays that frosted tip guy like the angel oh the fully blonde yeah Oh, fully blonde. Right? Yeah, he's. Uh, but that's who Edward Norton slash Tyler beats up when he says he wanted to destroy something beautiful. Right. I didn't know that that was uh, Jared yeah, Leto. Jared but, Leto. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like he, I think is obviously very jealous of that pretty boy but tough look, and so that's probably why he like hates it externally, but internally that's still what he's projecting as his ideal identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. No. Well, thanks for taking my criticism and spinning it into a very positive observation. No, I. I'm so you like the movie. Before. Right. So I. No. Honestly, you oh, are. No. You point. You. Wow. You really opened me up to a new, <laughs> a new element to this movie. Wow. So now I only have two criticisms of the movie. So okay, um, lay them on me. Uh, the the first one is that scene, the human sacrifice quote-unquote scene with Raymond uh, behind, you know, when he goes to the convenience store. So on one hand, I guess it's kind of good that he pushed him to follow his dreams Mm -hmm. of being a veterinarian. But looking at it now, especially in today's economy, there's nothing wrong with with running a convenience store or working at a convenience store. You know, it's the the guy's just, you know, doing his job. (laughs) Like, like there's really nothing nothing wrong with that and the movie plays it off as such like a triumph and you know maybe maybe it was but but you know maybe maybe it wasn't maybe it really messed him up this guy Raymond up so that's kind of a scene that really hasn't aged well because it's like you know just just leave Raymond alone like why like what are you trying to (laughs) that happens in the book as well and I agree not only in this economy but being as it is that we live in times where violence against minorities is very common like i think that's a really white way of looking at raymond's situation like it's so judgmental of this white guy to barge into a computer store and assume that the reason that raymond isn't a veterinarian is just because he didn't have the drive Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that is so so racist like that's such an awful assumption like maybe maybe raymond in the book like i don't i don't think that it was mentioned maybe that he wasn't white or whatever like i don't remember but the fact that he doesn't present as like a white person and like this white guy just barges in and is like judging the fact that he works at a little computer store like that is so that's like one of those things where i'm just like wow like that is really tone deaf (laughs) like you know and like like yeah i think it is like presented as this like heroic act that like this person is liberating all these people who are just cogs of the machine to become something and like make themselves into something but like 
that is, you know, that's like that like American bootstraps thing where like that's not possible for so many people because of a lot of other situations, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And the argument can be made that, you know, that act was the narrator's mind, you know, the narrator as Tyler wrongly thinking he was doing the right thing when when actually that was a really awful thing to do to someone. But the way it's kind of framed and filmed, taking the race element out of it, I just think the way that you're propping this act of doing this up as something like cool and edgy, I think that that's a part where I understand the the controversial nature of the film. Well, yeah, no, no, I totally agree. Like that's that's just another level of like of violence that this person doesn't think that he can have any power or influence, even positive influence right. over someone without holding fear over their heads. And mm-hmm. that's really sick. You're right. Yeah. I agree. And the other kind of criticism, um, and this would be the last one for me before I get back into praise, is that is that that one remark where the narrator, he kind of half jokes, half threatens shooting up the office to his boss, uh, Zach, played by his boss, played by Zach Grenier, who's in the show Devs. He plays a great character in Devs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's cool to see him pop up in, mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, he, he's great. He's great in Fight Club. But yeah, when he jokes about shooting up, the, they had filmed that scene um, before Columbine. Columbine. You know what? I, yes. Right. And, yeah. and, and in all the screenings for this movie, which happened after Columbine, the scene went over really terribly. But Fincher wanted to cut the scene altogether, but, and he considered doing it. But that scene leads into the pivotal Marla you know, breast cancer uh, check scene. Mm-hmm. And he decided that you know, the scene couldn't be cut. He wanted to. Why he didn't reshoot the scene um, is a mystery. I, I don't know if they were. They did go over budget with this movie, and the producers weren't happy because mm-hmm. they had this product that was going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, which it did. So maybe they didn't give David Fincher more money to reshoot that scene. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is just like one comment. It isn't a whole thing. They don't visualize it. But yeah, it, of course, in today's climate, it does not go over well yeah there are a few things if i can just sort of cap your discussion off on issues yeah (laughs) so that was something that i wrote down immediately as soon as he started teasing that threat of coming into an office with a gun i immediately checked the publication of the book because the same dialogue happens in the book i immediately checked the publication and then i checked the date when this movie came out and I found out it was before the Columbine shootings in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And that almost, that like rocked my world because that ages so poorly. I mean, consider like I have to take online active shooter we do classes. Yeah, at work, like online classes. And like the first time that I took that online at my job, like that was traumatizing. And I've never been in an active shooter situation. And just reading that passage, like, almost made me sick. Like, it's it's a really dark thing to ponder. But nowadays, like, it's like, like, I wouldn't even say that it doesn't age well. Just the fact that, like, that is written down on paper, like, makes me just really, really nauseous. Mm-hmm. And sad, because a lot of men do think that, like, that's the way that their masculinity has to be expressed is through gun violence Mm -hmm. um another thing that i just thought was kind of ages poorly is like attacks on office buildings because this is also pre-9-11 and i just like even talking about these things like they make my heart start racing because like these things are so triggering to people like this kind of violence is so triggering and again like i understand the masculinity of it i understand the satire but like these are real ideas that people entertain and not only entertain, but follow through on. And the fact that like, I don't really see Chuck Palahniuk distancing himself from ideas like this. And like the way that I saw plenty of interviews with Ed Norton, Brad Pitt and David Fincher, three men that I really respect. I love their work. Like they juice that, masculinity out of their acceptance speeches and their interviews like 
I take a lot of issue with that because I don't I don't see them like like acknowledging that these things are very traumatic for people in that I'm sorry to like go on sort of a soapbox <laughs> speech but like just this whole thing like oozes toxic masculinity and I don't see a lot of distancing the satire from the violence or like trying to wrap it all together if I'm making sense does that make no sense? you're making sense but I think that I can't speak for how they conduct themselves in interviews but I think the whole ending of the movie of Tyler realizing that you know unlike the cultish bro fans of the movie he understands that Tyler is flawed that he understands that his toxic masculinity led to this point yeah so no, yeah no I that, that's what I'm saying like I I understand and a lot of times like I do try to distance the artist from the piece. Mm -hmm. I really do. But in situations like this, to me, it like, that's where I just take a lot of issue with it, where it's like, it's, it's so, the satire is so buried that I think it's very easy to cross the line into saying like, these things are acceptable. I'm like sweating as I talk, because I understand that like, I, I, get it yeah i get i get that it's saying that masculinity can be toxic if it's taken to this level but it's just like from a perspective of someone who's like been traumatized by male energy Mm -hmm. like again like i'm literally sweating like my legs Uh are like sweating because it just it just makes me like very uncomfortable yeah so yeah i mean like as a man like just take yeah, I hope you understand, if you're listening, obviously, that it's satire and that it's not. Yeah, and, you know, it's a slippery slope. you got to walk a fine line. I mean, people have been saying this about movies and video games since the the yeah. dawn of time that they, that they incite violence, mm-hmm. that people take their messages literally. And it's a conversation that continues to this day. And... There's no clear answer as to whether um, whether that's true or not, and I get that you get its messaging, and you know it's hard it's hard for me to really comment on that because I'm someone who also gets gets it and is not offended right. or made uncomfortable by it. But I can't speak for someone who is offended or uncomfortable like yourself. I can't I can't speak for you, but I very much appreciate how the first half is does go overboard with toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and seventh grade Danny really liked that and then to see the second half happen to see it descend into chaos was pretty cool and to have the narrator switch like that on the dime and do everything he can to stop it because mm-hmm. he because he realized really what he's done mm-hmm. uh, the severity of it I just that was was a big you know lesson for me and I've always been cognizant of my toxic masculinity since seeing this film i'm not i'm not perfect sometimes i do get too macho but this even watching it last night i kind of it always puts into perspective like like how am i carrying myself it, like good. yeah so it, i might be reaching a little bit here but i do think well i think that's good like some of my favorite movies are the movies that make me reflect on the way that I act like call me by your name which we've talked about and about time which unfortunately isn't based on a book (laughs) (laughs) yeah those are some of my favorite movies because they no matter where I am in my life when I rewatch them it makes me reevaluate how I'm acting and the way that I react to situations so I guess like that's a good way of putting it into perspective for me like if that is what this movie does for you. I understand a little bit more why you enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It's just obviously like I would never have to reflect on my toxic masculinity because I'm obviously female that is never toxic. And look, (laughs) I'm I'm not going to sit here and say that I didn't think some parts of the Fight Club or Brad Pitt um, was cool. I'm like, that. that I'd be lying. Like, of Mm -hmm. course, of course some parts are, are... are cool like being in the secret club like fighting like beating someone up and winning or like brad pitt wearing these cool suits some of them haven't yeah and the colored glasses i mean i mean it's it's brad pitt that's why this is one of his best roles because he's perfect for this role he he acts 
like someone who at first you think I want to be that guy, mm-hmm. but who actually is the opposite of what you right. want to be. And and I think that that's you know David Fincher did that on purpose. And I mm-hmm. and and again like you know going off the grid or you know having the secret society across the whole nation like that that is cool, mm-hmm. but it but it also isn't. So you know it's that kind of fine line that the movie is is walking and you just i think what really makes it cool all the actions really cool is the score by the dust brothers that mm-hmm. kind of like new age pop mm-hmm. uh like rock to get it with the drum like the snares going and it and some of it is a little dated the music but then at other times it's some of the coolest just like i have the soundtrack it's so it's just Every song just bops, but mm. yeah, I really, really love David Fincher. He always works with the best of the best. He usually has uh, Nine Inch Nails, you know, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross uh, score his films. But for for this film, he enlisted the, the Dust Brothers, which I don't know if they have done anything else. Their IMDb page is pretty sparse, but they really knocked it out of the park. Well, it's interesting. Something that hasn't really aged well, unfortunately is the computer effects, the computer-generated effects in the movie. Which were groundbreaking at the right. time. I'm yeah, I'm sure they were. But, like, there are a couple, there are a couple shots where I'm like, is this Toy Story? <laughs> like, sure. There's a, you know when the, the camera is filming the inside of the trash bin? Mm-hmm. And it pulls out, and you sort of see, like, a Coke cup and an apple and a drink tray... Like, it's like, oh, man. Yeah, like, well, that is so bad, David, which is unfortunate, but, you know. David Fincher, I mean, that's a staple of his, a lot of his films is, like, the camera zooming in throughout this, whole, like, rooms, and it's all, you know, digital. And the effects were a lot better in Panic Room, which would come, would come out three years later. Okay. But, yeah, he was just starting it out here, groundbreaking at the time. That one scene that you just mentioned, zooming in, I read a fact that that took three weeks to render, Whoa. That whole thing, which yeah. is a lot uh, for so Sony, sad, doesn't that? Now it just looks like you should find Woody. Hanging I, out I don't think I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> I thought it was gonna. Yeah, I. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> and but. like the penguin in the cave, like. Mm-hmm. I I guess <laughs> Jurassic Park had come out earlier, so the, the movie really doesn't have an excuse because those effects still hold up today. But, I mean, come on. Give my boy Fincher That's a break. I, yes, I give him a break because I understand that it was the 90s. <laughs> the faraway land of the 90s. Gosh, I got to get this back on track. for My <laughs> My brothers are listening to this, and they love it. Uh, here. You've, you've defended it very well. Uh, not well. I'm not as eloquent as you. People are going to hate the movie. No. <laughs> I don't. I get you, flustered. You... <laughs> Brought me around to the understanding of why you might want to rewatch it. Because sure. it reminds you of how not to act. That's fair. It's just a perspective that I don't share. So you get you yeah. brought me around a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I watch it for that. And like I've been alluding to earlier, I just think from a, a pacing standpoint, I'd marvel at it from what you know the script is able to do. Uh, it, it was... Polinick did not write the script. It was adapted mm-hmm. by Jim Ools who hasn't written anything else other than Jumper, which came out in 2008. Not a great film. Kind of a guilty pleasure, though. I saw that with my other brother, Tim. It's it's a fun movie, but it's kind of crazy how those are the only two things he's written. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I thought you'd get a lot more work after, especially after Fight Club. Controversial movies whether you know they're well received or not usually people work after them because people are talking about the movies huh. um so th- th- that's what kind of led to fight club's digital success because everyone was still talking about it despite it being out of theaters and mm-hmm. and fox was kind of like what's going on here like people are still gravitating toward mm-hmm. this film and when they released it on dvd they're like oh we kind of have a cult hit on our hands but jim ools what he was able to do with the script i mean just uh, tight it just moves again it's a long movie but you don't know it here some more fun facts to lighten the mood well i have a fun fact oh go ahead so this is something i learned on cracked shout out to that website yeah great website my brothers also introduced me to that site shout out to my brothers it's a fun site yeah and I was on a listicle a while ago, 
And it said, here's the thing, I'm not able to confirm this because I looked for it when we popped the Blu-ray in and I didn't see it. But you know how in the beginning of movies, there's always that warning against pirating. Mm. So apparently the warning that came with a DVD or something, some edition, there's a Tyler Durden warning, but I didn't see it with this Blu-ray. It's like, it's well, like it, he, he like rewrote it. It appears for a, a split second, not even Is like a full second. Oh, really? Because yeah. I missed it. I'm so bummed. I, I mean, I missed it too. I, I forgot about that too. But it's one of those oh, things where, man, I missed it. where if you pause it at just the right time, it'll be right. like a fake warning and it'll be Tyler saying this like, like, do you really have that much time in your life where you pause it to read all this? Like, you're just like all the other sheep or, you know, something <laughs> akin yeah. to that. Where, yeah, and I was really excited to read it and then I guess I missed it. But that's actually something that, again, like the visual cue of Tyler flickering in and out. It's like right. very meta of yeah. how like, oh, Tyler's seen this movie and he's spliced in little flickers of himself for when... Ed Norton starts having the really, really bad insomnia. And yeah. so he starts seeing Tyler just for a flicker of a moment. And so, like, that's a, that was a smart choice. I liked that. And I completely forgot about it because, obviously, the last time I saw it was the first time. So that was smart. I liked that. Yeah. And that you brought up insomnia. I'm surprised I didn't talk about this be before. But even though I've never had insomnia, I have pulled all-nighters in college as mm. you have and you know oh, I've suffered from yeah as as most people but the feeling of sleep deprivation yeah in that kind of you're in that in-between of you're awake but you're also you're not of things kind of being fuzzy of you when of he you. says a copy of a copy of a copy he says it in the book and yeah. he says it in the movie that's a really great line and of him kind of i think what what's really a, a great detail is of him surfing through infomercials when he's yeah when he's when he can't sleep what happens with me is like i and i haven't had it as severe as tyler obviously but it's like you want something that's so bad it's like you literally want something boring because you're just like put me to sleep mm -hmm. <laughs> like like if you're watching an infomercial at 2 a.m like, you want it to put you asleep. Like, when I'm watching Bob Ross, that's the way that I cope with my insomnia and anxiety. It's like, I'm just like, put me to sleep, please. Yeah. Like, please, like, you're begging your life to be so boring that you have to shut your brain off and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that that was described really well in the movie, like... And for someone who doesn't have YouTube or Netflix to put him to sleep, infomercials, I'm sure, is what right. I would turn to. <laughs> yeah, this is all. I, I like how this movie exists in a time right before that big technological boom of cell phones right. and, I guess, Uber and, and other stuff like that. So they're still going to pay phones. They're still going in taxi cabs. Right. It's, and they're not it, texting each other. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah, they're still able to live in this dilapidated old house because... They're not concerned with TV or, or other gadgets or anything like that. It's right. like, right, it, it's a cool space and or time. Wi yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wi Fi. Yeah, the, the, yeah, their lives don't revolve around that. So, yeah, I think the 90s, especially late 90s, is a really cool, interesting period of time. Again, not that long ago, but it, it's mm -hmm. really cool to look back. And I mean, like, we were. We were too young to really take in that time, mm -hmm. the late 90s. I have flickers of it, but yeah, like... Yeah. yeah. Not full memory. So, I don't know. That, that might be just a me thing, but I, I like films that take place. It, it's a cool little cultural thing where it happened so, you know, soon. Again, 20 years ago, but... Or no, sorry, 21 years ago. But... It, it feels at times it can feel like 40 years away in like in the differences in culture technology so yeah I, I, that's something that really interests me pumps your nads pumps my nads up <laughs> another fun fact in that scene the homework scene when the fight club when tyler gives the fight club homework saying you need to get in a fight and you will lose yeah. uh the scene when you uh, will lose. Yeah, uh, Bill Tench, the guy who in My Hunter. Yeah, he's in yes. this. Oh, what's his name? Holt McClaney. I think that's how you pronounce it. He, yeah, he's he's so good. In he's Mind so Hunter. yeah, so good in Mind Hunter. But he in the scene, 
he sprays um, a priest with a hose, you know, to incite the fight. And then he sprays him again, and the camera slightly shakes. And a fun fact behind that is that the cameraman, uh, presumably Jeff Cronenweth, couldn't stop laughing during that. So that little shake you see is him laughing. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. The the priest popping up in subsequent scenes is kind of a fun fact, too. Yeah. (laughs) That he's been, like, completely corrupted from the cloth. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, just that. It's really funny. And he's such a puny, like, wimpy guy. And, like, but he's one of the people who did fight back. Because remember how Tyler says, like, you won't believe how what lengths men will go to not fight. But then it happens to be like the priest that ends up and baby, pulled into the fight club. Baby, you're you're doing another you're unknowingly contributing to the greatness of this movie. It's a it's a comment on the message of him saying like he wins a fight. Well he the guy Bill Tench let him win. I think it's more of a comment of how smart I am that I can defend a movie that I don't even appreciate. Oh sure, uh, that is true too. I think that that's doubly true. I think I think you are smart and I love you. But this movie is also great, and you're helping doing that, un- unknowingly helping. But, yeah, to have, I think the movie is saying that, like, look, you can take the wimpiest or, you know, the people who you don't think would fight back, like a priest. But then as soon as you let them have that taste of victory via violence, look, he, the very next night, he's in the fight club. He's a member. Like, you, you switched him like that. So I think that's also pretty pretty smart of the movie adds to the satire of it saying that like look you know you give any of this any man a taste of victory via violence and look he turns into a monster so yeah yeah um so i don't know if you have anything else to talk about regarding that but i was gonna bring up the theme of self-destruction because we haven't talked about it yet but it's one of the biggest Mm -hmm. and it's it's summed up really well in the scene on the bus that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And I wanted to quote it because it's... I thought it was interesting that we talked about the self-destruction theme and Annihilation, and this kind of goes along with that really well. Yeah. And the line on the bus really stuck out to me. It's when Tyler slash Brad Pitt says, self-improvement is masturbation. Now, self-destruction, and then he sort of tapers off and that's the end of the scene or whatever or they get interrupted that was interesting because obviously this whole thing is about tyler ed norton's character yeah being so sleep deprived that he i think kind of on the surface his actions are caused by him wanting to die like he's so sleep deprived that that like he can't think of another way to fall asleep except for either to harm himself or lie to people. Well, first, it kind of goes in a stepwise motion, right? Like, first, he can't get any emotional release unless he's lying, right? And he's going to all of those self-help groups that he doesn't have the disease for. Mm -hmm. So that helps him sleep. And then when that's taken away by Marla, he goes into the self-destruction mode because he doesn't think that he can get any rest unless he's self-harming or he's dead. And I think that's also the reason, like, he sets up Project Mayhem to ultimately not only destroy the credit card companies or whatever, but also Marla. Because he thinks that she's taken away the emotional release part that helped him sleep. So, like, it's something so small. It's really interesting to think, like, sleep is so essential to human function that he's literally, he turns to self-harm to be able to rest and then the fact that he can't get that and the fact that Tyler starts to take over slowly, like more and more, like when he says like, was I going to sleep earlier? Was I waking up later? Because Tyler's trying to take over his normal self. Like that, that's so scary (laughs) to think about like you, you literally can't sleep. So the only way that you can, you're like chasing that is self harm. Like that Mm. is so, so deep. and great (laughs) (laughs) but i understand it i mean yeah like i i don't have severe insomnia but i get that like sometimes you're so desperate it's just like yeah yeah like i'll watch infomercials or i'll listen to bob ross for seven hours just to try to get like five minutes of sleep anyway that is a really 
interesting take, and, and I actually haven't thought about it that deeply. I saw it more the self-destruction as he was self-destructing against the part of himself that has become like a drone in, in society and someone who mm-hmm. isn't, you know, having this personal interaction. Because, because that's what he said, you know, the narrator said to Marla is that he started going to all these groups because the people actually like talked to them and, and listened. Yeah. And it's like real connection. Of course, these people thought he was dying, right. but you know, that's not really the point to the narrator. It's like, he's actually, he's becoming someone who is not this lifeless drone mm-hmm. run by consumerism. Mm-hmm. And then of course, when that's taken away from him, when Marla comes, that's when his insomnia comes back and he becomes a drone again. Like whenever he slips into the person he doesn't want to be, mm-hmm. that's when his insomnia um, starts. So in a way, yeah. he creates Tyler to get kind of a real flesh and blood, of course he's not actually real, but to get someone, to meet someone, to be someone who is what he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And you could say that it's not self-destruction, it is self-improvement because he creates Tyler, but then what he doesn't realize is what he wants to be mm-hmm. is actually destructive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that go, it's ironic that, that Tyler's the one who says self-improvement is masturbation when Tyler himself is the manifestation of supposed mm-hmm. self-improvement. Mm-hmm. And I saw this cool fun fact that, you know, Chuck Polinick, he first came up with the idea for Fight Club after being beaten up on a camping trip. Uh, at when he complained to some nearby campers about the noise of their radio. That's totally something we would do, by the way, being like, hey, could you turn it down a bit? I totally get yeah. like that. And so, and when he returned to work, Chuck Polinick, he was fascinated that no one would mention or acknowledge his injuries. Like instead, you know, saying such commonplace things as like, how's your weekend? So, you know, Polinick concluded that the reason people reacted this way was because if they asked him like what actually happened, a degree of personal interaction like would be necessary. So, and his workmates simply didn't care enough to connect with him on a personal level. And like it was this, it was his Chuck Polinick's fascination with societal blocking which kind of became the foundation of the novel, he claims. So it's like the narrator... Well, you're he... teaching me something about the book. So oh, cool. I'm, I'm glad. Like, the narrator, he he wants to essentially destruct that part of life, that part of non-human, single-serve friends. He he wants to be something more. He wants to to, like, have life in him, right? And he thinks Tyler is that creation. Mm-hmm. But then, as you were saying, no, it's actually, Tyler's actually self-destructing because he's mm-hmm. going farther down into the rabbit hole of, you know, anarchy and carnal rage, which I think the book and the movie are rightfully saying, like, hey, this is bad. You, yeah. you shouldn't, <laughs> don't, don't do this. That's not the personal connection that right. you want because it's not being anything positive in your life exactly exactly pressure. i think paul next saying like join a club just don't let it be a fight club join a book club yeah b- book club <laughs> the sequel book club that's what he's saying <laughs> join a book club and i'm also promoting my next book book club yeah <laughs> that's what he's saying wow i mean kudos to chuck that's well, pretty cool no, go ahead and throw out my insomnia analysis no 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 i think no. that's as valid as what i said no it's if it's not really, more it's a really good point I'm I'm garnering a little bit more appreciation. That doesn't mean that I approve of this book or the movie, mm-hmm. but yeah, I understand a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one more thing to say before we wrap it up that it's one of the best endings in my opinion. Say what you will about the movie as a whole. I think sure. the ending with the pixie song playing of of Marla oh, of and I was swimming in the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a beautiful shot. Where is my mind? Where? Okay, so, yeah, the, the shot on its own is beautiful, but I think what it signifies, I mean, what a way to literally end on a bang, yeah. but to have it be hold so much weight. 
Yeah. And and uh, it, yeah, and you know it leaves enough up to interpretation of what's going to happen next. Maybe you know I've heard some arguments that they died, that they were in a building that was going to blow up, or right. I've always wondered that too. You're right, uh, but uh, but he did pull out the wire. So, right, he pulled out yeah. the wire there, and and it would make more sense to watch the buildings go down, and like because everyone else was in the buildings too, and they weren't in that building and they weren't planning on killing anyone yeah that all of the people were out yeah so fantastic ending one of the great i mean that song and that movie will be forever linked uh Mm -hmm. the pixies really i mean that song is one of the greats but yeah great ending one of one of my favorite endings next to maybe the ending of the truman show probably those two (laughs) those two movie endings are probably my favorite but yeah what about calling my name Oh, that that's also great too. Visions of Gideon. <laughs> Visions of Gideon. <laughs> oh, that good Sufjan Stevens. Yeah, gotta love him. All right, there, Lorby. I'm and, yawning. It's time to go to bed because I ate a lot of that soup that I made. Mm, oh, she made so great good. soup. Oh, chicken, corn, some onions, some homemade some broth. Ver, yeah, verde salsa, uh, some Chilies. chili, garlic. Oh, you name it. Oh, you oh, knocked it out of so the park, good. girl. Rice. Mm. But, yeah, I gotta go to sleep because Mama's had soup and she had wine. Oh, so. <laughs> you know, when you put those two together, so it's, sleep. It's about 8 o'clock, Mama's bedtime. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. Laura, I gotta go to a club in the basement. Don't worry. <sighs> it's Well, I can't talk about the club uh, that was the first rule, and second rule is I can't talk about it, but, but... Just, just, is it a book club? Blink your eyes if it's a book club. Yes. It's a book club in the sense that we beat people with books. <laughs> oh my god. It's a new twist on it, but this has been fun. Laura, where can we find you? We have set up a Facebook page, Film is Lit Podcast. Go ahead and throw us a like on there. I set up my first Instagram account, Film is Lit Podcast. Look us up on Instagram, follow us on there, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Yeah, all you sheep. Subscribe so we can get our numbers up, so we can get sponsorships, so we can sell you stuff. Sell you stuff you don't need. To, so you work at jobs you hate. No, I love my job. I don't I, want this to take I love my life. job too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, please please rate and subscribe if you want to. And Danny, where, where can our listeners find you? Thank you. Um, you. You can find me on Letterboxd where I write all my movie reviews. My handle is Danny G Reviews. I, I think you're gonna like it. I, I it's a great place where I put down all my thoughts on, yeah, I on like, stuff. I like all of his reviews. I so got I'm... a lot of opinions, and all of them are right. <laughs> all right. That's about it for this Tuesday night. Don't join a fight club. Join a book club. That's it. Bye. Bye.